There's something about bubbles that cause a little trouble. It's hard to ignore assets when we watch them double. It makes us antsy. It makes us squirm. We lose our grip. We thought it was so firm. But bubbles and manias are nothing new. We've seen them in spices, tulips, and dot-com stocks, too. Some are lucky and can time them right. Buy low and sell high. Lock those profits up tight. But most of us don't have that knack. Bad timing, too busy, we hesitate to attack. But that's okay. There's another way. Have a long-term plan. Keep your portfolio diversified. When big drops happen, you won't be so petrified. Spread out your risk, rebalance, and assess. And keep your ears on the Investopedia Express. Welcome aboard, and it's good to be back on the tracks with you. On today's show, Meme Stock Mania is back as AMC Entertainment, GameStop, BlackBerry, and the other highly shorted, hotly traded tickers are back in the hopper. What's driving the buzz, and how are these companies dealing with their inflated stock prices? Plus, the U.S. labor market is showing some signs of improving, but there are still dislocations everywhere. We'll break it down. And Liz Clayman, anchor of the Clayman Countdown on Fox Business News, joins the show to talk about what's different about this stock market mania compared to others in the recent past. Plus, the investing term the educated investor needs to know this week. Let's get to it. Summer swoon for stocks? Not yet. Global equity markets are charging higher, but not without some choppiness. But the gains so far in 2021 ain't so shabby. Looking at the MSCI World Indexes, India is up 8%. The US and Australia up 10% each. Europe and India up 12 and 13%. And then there's Canada, up 20.6% year to date. Fun fact, Investopedia was started in Canada about 23 years ago in the great city of Edmonton. Respect to the great north. What sectors are leading the gains? Here in the U.S., looking into the S&P 500 super sectors, it looks like this. Energy's up 45%. Financial's up 26%. Communication services, that's your Facebook and Google's of the world, they're up 22%. And materials, up 19%. The S&P 500 is up 12% year-to-date and sitting right below a record high. Not bad at all, given the walls of worry we investors seem to have to keep climbing. But it's been a stock picker's market for those who like to chase meme stocks. The party is far from over for day traders in the Wall Street Bets crowd on Reddit, and last week was a bender. We're going streaky! Ah, Will. It was movie time last week as shares of AMC Entertainment jumped 80% in four days. How did AMC reward its shareholders for their newfound loyalty? by offering them a free large popcorn the next time they go to the movies, and by issuing 11 million new shares of stock. That's what companies typically do when they see their share price go stratospheric. They offer more, assuming investors, and especially traders, have a bottomless appetite. Well, that didn't go so well for AMC, as shares fell 20% on the day of the offering, even though those 11 million shares were gobbled right up. Still, The stock is up some 2,100% in 2021 alone, and barely anyone is going to the movies. $10,000 invested in AMC at the beginning of the year is today worth around $216,000. How are we not supposed to feel some FOMO when that happens? But don't forget, AMC has over $5 billion in debt it still needs to pay. Shares of Express, the clothing retailer, which was swirling the bankruptcy drain last year, are up 422% year-to-date. It tried to run AMC's playbook last week by issuing 15 million new shares. Once investors realized that would be more than 20% of the retailer's shares outstanding, they changed their style, sending the stock down 20% in one day. 
and shares of BlackBerry were up more than 40% last week as well. It's a fan favorite among day traders, but when was the last time you actually saw a BlackBerry in the wild that you couldn't eat? It's more of a patent and technology company today, but it's deep in the bubble machine, and who knows how long any of this will last. The U.S. labor economy is showing some signs of life. 559,000 jobs were added last month, and the unemployment rate dipped to 5.8%. That's a pandemic low. Job gains are good, and they came mostly from the leisure and hospitality sector, with 198,000 of those jobs coming from bars and restaurants. But that sector is still hobbled from the pandemic. It's still down 2.5 million jobs since before the pandemic, or 15%, and it lost $280 billion last year as 110,000 restaurants in the U.S. closed their doors for good. Across the economy, the labor force participation rate, which measures the total amount of working adults actively in the labor force, is stuck around 61%. It's been there for months, and businesses, large and small, say they can't get enough good workers. Many blame the extended unemployment benefits that are putting an extra $300 per week in unemployed Americans' pockets. 25 states are eliminating those payments this month, and the federal government will stop them in early September. But businesses are stretched and the labor supply is low, even though wages are rising for the first time in 15 years. Let's get set up for the week ahead. With earnings season almost behind us and a relatively quiet corporate activity calendar this week, investors will focus on the economy and signs that the Fed may begin to tighten its monetary policies. This week, we'll get key reports on core inflation, consumer sentiment and expectations, the jobs turnover rate, and the G7 summit. Economy watchers will be paying close attention to the JOLTS report this Tuesday, which gives us more clarity into the availability of jobs around the country. We know employers say they can't find enough qualified workers, and some workers say they can't find jobs that pay them enough to return to the workforce, so the JOLTS report will paint a better picture of that imbalance. On Thursday, the European Central Bank will meet on interest rates and monetary policy. Like most central banks, the ECB has pledged to maintain its current level of interest rates, or what it calls its marginal lending facility, at 0 to 0.25%, and it has yet to start reducing or tapering its monthly government bond purchases. Like the U.S. Central Bank, the ECB is under pressure to start tapering those purchases as the economic recovery accelerates throughout the Eurozone. We'll see if it moves closer to that kind of language on Thursday. G7 leaders are convening in person at Oxford University in England this Thursday and Friday, and a few topics will dominate the agenda. The first, a more coordinated effort to send vaccines to poorer countries to prevent the further spread of COVID-19. The second, how to stop the rampant surge in cyber attacks the U.S. alleges are coming from Russia and other countries. And the third, finding a compromise on a global corporate tax rate that the Biden administration is pursuing. Over the weekend, the G7 finance ministers backed a U.S. proposal that calls for corporations around the world to pay at least a 15% tax on their earnings. It's not a done deal yet, but it looks likely by the end of the year. And Apple is hosting its annual Worldwide Developers Conference beginning today. The iPhone and Mac maker is expected to walk through highlights of its iOS 15, watchOS 8, Mac OS 12, and TV OS 15 operating systems. Details on the new MacBook Pros and the new Apple Design processors will also be forthcoming. CEO Tim Cook's keynote address is anticipated to focus in part on data privacy and security issues. That's a big deal for Apple if you hadn't noticed lately. 
The past year and a half has been a bonanza of business news with wild moves across the stock market, cryptocurrencies, meme stocks, trillions in government spending, and historic monetary policy moves. For business journalists, it's been an all-you-can-eat buffet of breaking news and stop-the-presses moments as we've witnessed and reported on things we've never seen or studied before. Liz Clayman is the anchor of the Clayman Countdown on Fox Business News. She's a best-selling author and one of the best business journalists in the business. She's had a front row seat to it all, and she's our very special guest on the Investopedia Express. Welcome, Liz. Oh, Caleb, right back at you. I mean, I live and die by Investopedia. You and me both. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to take myself back to my days of producing business news television and try to put myself into one of your show meetings. You got your 3 p.m. show on Fox Business News every weekday. How in the world do you decide what makes it into that rundown every day when news is flying around us at hyperspeed? Yes, it is. And that is a perfect question because I can tell you whatever we talk about at 10 in the morning, I am happiest when two minutes before 3 p.m. Eastern, the final hour of trade, we rip it all up because we love breaking news. And I can only tell you that what we do is we look at not only the biggest pieces of news, because if we did, we'd have a 10-hour show, but the ones that matter most right now to our viewing audience. You know, the sexy stories, the ones that you feel are really very much at the zeitgeist of investing at the moment. So we go in there and we do plan guests in advance because we have to at least prepare. But sometimes we have to sit there and say, you know what, we got to get rid of that guest today. It's not on the news. We need to get somebody who is more focused on what happened overnight, what happened early this morning, what happened late yesterday that wasn't planned. So we try to remain extremely fluid and we look through everything and we go through the guests, we go through the rundown of how we're going to stack the show. And I love it best when we're all arguing, wait a minute, this should be moved to the D block and this should be moved up to the lead. And this is a bigger story that needs more time in the B block. You know, we parse it all out through six different blocks. And so I I think that that's the most important aspect. It's an intersection of ideas and thought. And not only that, Caleb, we don't just sit there and say, okay, we've got such and such a guest. We talk about what the screen should look like while this person is on. We need video, but let's split it with the stock chart and let's make sure our banner is exciting and eye-grabbing because people watch business news often with the sound down. So we definitely feel that a victory is when we get somebody to look up and say, that's a sexy screen. That's an interesting banner. I need to turn this up. Right. I know exactly what you mean. And if you don't have a show meeting where temperatures are getting a little bit raised and people are arguing for blocks and time and better guests, then you're not doing it right. But you guys do it right. It's one of the best shows on any network covering businesses because it's so exciting and you bring such a passion to it, which is so much fun to watch. You and I, Liz, have covered a few stock bubbles and busts in our careers, even though we're only 28 years old. What's different (laughs) to you about this current mania around meme stocks and cryptocurrencies? What's your perspective on what just feels so different this time. Well, for people who don't know, I actually came from local news. You know, I was covering drug busts, murders, explosions, tornadoes, chocolate festivals. That was the first nine years of my career. I was in Columbus, Ohio, then Cleveland, then Boston. And then I was dying to get to either New York or LA, enough of this traversing the nation into smaller markets. And the only job I could get was on cable. So cable was CNBC. And I remember my agent calling me because we had agents at that point. And this was 1998. He said, CNBC wants to meet you. And literally, this was just as the dot-com bubble was inflating. And I'm thinking to myself, what's CNBC? It was not what it is today. I mean, it was for a very niche stock trading audience. 
My dad had talked about it a little bit, but he was a surgeon. So, you know, what they say about doctors and investing. But I knew a slight bit about it. I started watching it. I saw the ticker and I said, well, how am I ever going to get hired here? I'm covering local news. I don't know anything about the stock market. These are serious Wall Streeters watching this network. And then I realized, wait a minute, life is about fake it till you make it. So I went in for the interview and 1998, I got hired and it was just as the dot-com bubble started to completely go nuts. And there are parallels today with the mean stocks as there are compared to back then, because I knew nothing about stock trading. And suddenly I was interviewing college graduates, the kids from Cornell who had started the globe.com. You remember that one, Oh, oh yeah. which was at that point, it was the most successful IPO. And of course, a couple of years later, the whole thing imploded when the dot-com bubble burst, but they were worth $90 million on paper. And I remember thinking for that, for a website where you kind of just meet up and sell products. I mean, think about Etsy today and Facebook, they were the precursors, but Listen, being too early is just as bad as being too late. And maybe they were too early. Who knows? But that was my experience. And what you see today is absolutely historic. Things that you and I, just as you said in the introduction, have never seen before. And that is the retail investor powering and overpowering the Wall Street investor. It's fascinating. Right. The conversation and the heat around the retail investor. And as we know, so many new people started trading for the first time in the last 12 to 14 months amid the pandemic for one reason or the other. No sports, maybe stimulus money, nothing to do, just wanting to get into it, watching this bull market take off in an unprecedented fashion. Plus, Liz, you can't deny the fact that platforms and technology have enabled this because trading commissions are gone. It's easier than ever to open an account. You can buy fractional shares. The access to the market has never been easier. And the the heat around it has never been hotter, it seems, even though you and I have seen sock puppets in 1999, and we've seen what happened coming out of the, the financial crisis. This seems a lot different for me. Indeed. And I would say 98% of it is really interesting, and I would say positive, and that is that that closed world of Wall Street, being able to crush a company because they wake up on whatever side of the bed and say, you know what, let me try and short this company into oblivion, does not sit well with this Reddit crowd who managed to realize that there's power in numbers. And they just gravitated toward each other. And they decided that they were going to, for better or for worse, stymie the short sellers who have often just completely controlled the stock market. And I'm not, I like short sellers. We love all of our viewers. And shorts have a very important role in the stock market. But this goes for all the bigwigs and hedge funds that are long on Wall Street. Why should they have all the power? So to me, this is a very fascinating and historic development. And I can remember when I was young, I grew up in California. My dad had Kodak stock. That was what he owned. And every morning he'd rush out to the driveway to get the LA Times and his finger would go down the stock charts and he'd find it and he'd see what it had done. And he turned to me one day, I was a little kid and he said, you know, Liz, the big boys on Wall Street already knew what happened yesterday at 4 p.m., but we have to wait till the next morning. So they get a jump on everything. Well, now what with technology and As you said, the perfect storm, the pandemic, people had a little bit of money to play with. They started playing and then playing to win. 
and they have. And I find that what's most important is that they better be ready for when the herd turns. And listen, they're making their choice. This is on them. But what we don't want is for a bunch of people to think that stocks only go up. And they're self-educated. Let's just hope they understand that when you play with money in the stock market, it's got to be money you can afford to lose because things turn very quickly. But for now, to watch this is really fascinating. Absolutely. And in a way, it's whatever the next person is willing to pay for the stock you just bought is kind of what it's worth now. Fundamentals are out the door on so many of these stocks, yet we're also in the midst. While this is happening in meme stock land, Liz, what's happening in the actual recovery and the shift from growth to value inside the broader stock market, and all of a sudden, the financials, the industrials, the the core raw components of industrial America are coming back amid this recovery. But over here, the stock market is completely being driven by a lot of mania and and these online forums where the power of the masses is really being felt for the first time. Like you got to also credit social media because things are moving so fast through these Reddit forums, certainly on Twitter, certainly on TikTok, where I know you have a great presence. It's just moving so quickly that people are easily captured by it. And I want to talk to you about your platforms because you have the show on Fox Biz. You have the terrific TikTok channel, which is a must-see and your Twitter feed. How are you trying to communicate to all of your viewers and followers in terms of the persona you're trying to be to them? Are you educating? Are you commentating? How do you frame that? And my podcast, may I just say, we, we just Absolutely. passed 100 episodes. It's interesting. I, I was the first at Fox Business to get a Twitter handle years ago. And it took me, I want to say, nine years to get 100,000 followers. It took me six months to get 206,000 followers on TikTok. Wow. Now, what am I doing on TikTok? One minute morning market updates. And we sit there, my producer, Julie McGonigal and I, overnight, we look and see what happens because we never sleep. And we now know what that audience on TikTok is interested in, because sometimes we'll do something that is a huge market story. And then we don't get that many views on it because they're not interested. You know, price of oil, they don't care. A lot of people don't have cars anymore. You can really get the sense of what's happening in major economic and social shifts over the past year. But what I try and do is, yes, teach a little bit. I am not an expert investor. However, I do, as a a respectful conduit, try very hard to educate people. So if you look at even in one minute TikTok, if I'm talking about Bitcoin skyrocketing, sometimes I'll say, like, for example, today I said, there's an asterisk here be careful, the herd can turn. It's very important to try and give people as much information as possible. We're talking about AMC. And I said, you guys have to also understand there's $10 billion of debt here. Okay. That's very real. I'm not saying that the gains in the stock aren't real. They definitely are, but just keep certain things in mind and make sure you keep your eyes open. And also what's fun about TikTok for me, is I get to show my personality much more. You know, in the show, my energy is exploding because it's this race to the close. Okay, and we're counting it down 13 minutes before the closing bell rings, 11 minutes. We've got three minutes to go. We do it like a horse race because you know what? It is in a way. And, and it's like the last five minutes of the Super Bowl. And that's what 
the countdown to the closing bell really is. So I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled. Liz, you're a journalist, but you, like a lot of us, are also an investor and a market participant, not a trader per se, but you know, you've been in this for, for a while. What scares you about what's happening inside the stock and cryptocurrency markets right now, if anything, as a market participant? Nothing scares me. When you work in local news and you're in category five hurricanes, nothing scares me. But losing money and watching people lose money is worrisome. And anybody who's ever witnessed a bubble knows what happens. They eventually pop. So I think it's really, really crucial to make sure that you're watching these things very carefully. And who knows what black swan event is going to be next? A lot of people did not know what would have triggered the financial crisis. They thought that housing prices were going to the moon and never coming down. But You know, in the early days of my first jobs in business news, I learned trees do not grow to the sky. At certain points, they stop. Okay. And sometimes they're hit with forest fires and they burn down and then they sprout back up again, the famed green shoots. But I would say right now, what is a little worrisome is that we have not seen a meaningful correction in the stock market in a while. And I don't count March 23rd of last year as a correction. The second we hit that bottom, we were popping back up, okay? And it's been an epic rise. I don't wish for these things, but they are healthy. And Warren Buffett often says that in his lifetime, he's already seen 13 crashes or 13 recessions. And he said, geez, I hope I see 13 more. They just exist and they happen. What just kind of concerns me, and I guess scares me a little bit, is that we haven't really seen one in a while. And Back in March, when we saw in 2020, the lockdowns freak the market out, people were so incredibly panicked. And then the Fed stepped in. The Fed stepped in. And what we don't have, Caleb, and I'd love to know whether you agree with me on this, is we don't allow failure. We're saving businesses. We're bailing out companies. We are bailing out people. I have no problem bailing out workers who lost their jobs through no fault of their own during the pandemic. but. When you put pillows down, every time you think a business is going to fall, it's not really capitalism. And I just sort of feel, why save companies that don't deserve to be saved? I agree with you. And I think that what the Fed has done is, you know, unprecedented is the word that gets thrown around all the time. But it did learn that in 2008, 2009, if you start buying up government bonds and laying that safety net and buying up mortgage bonds that nobody else wants to buy and being the buyer of last resort, you're going to make the capital markets feel a lot better because there is no room to fail, right? If the Fed is going to backstop you and we can continue to print money, there is no room to fail. So it does keep companies alive that maybe shouldn't be. It does prevent healthy sort of burns. If you think about the forest fire analogy, when that kind of has to happen in order to get that natural ecology and and the evolution of businesses and new companies, you kind of need that to happen. So I totally agree with you. And the fact that we haven't had a very big correction, maybe we had a, you know, a very cute little one in the NASDAQ for a couple of minutes, a couple of months ago. Do you think that that's because there are so many new participants in the market, whether they're active or passive, there's just a lot of money and money needs to go somewhere. And when you have interest rates pinned down to between zero and at 0.25%, where does money go? It's like water, Liz, it needs a place to go. I put this all on the Federal Reserve. I think that we missed a major opportunity slash window to have started raising rates after the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. By 2015, we were out of the emergency situation. 
everyone was so nervous. None of these Federal Reserve chiefs has the spine to take the blowback when you raise rates. And when you think about what Paul Volcker did in the 80s to stem and squash stagflation, where we had a stagnant economy, but hyperinflation, he raised interest rates to 18%. I remember my sister bought a house back then and she said, oh, I'm so lucky I got a a rate of 17% or something like that. I was like, she thought she was lucky at that point. We have a whole generation of people who think that money is really cheap to borrow. And it Honestly, it shouldn't be right now. We are out of the ICU of this economy. We're no longer in the emergency room. Heck, we're not even in a hospital gown lurching down the hallway with the IV tube. We're walking out the hospital door. And we shouldn't be having zero to a quarter percent rates. Those are for emergencies. And no one has the guts to say, it's time. So what do you have? You have tons of speculation. People are looking for yield. And the only place to get it is in risky stocks or the stock market, not necessarily risky because there's some great companies that pay dividends. But what about people who just want to save? They're called idiots for putting their money in money markets because it doesn't return jack. And I think that's going to be a killing blow at some point. And that, I guess, you've wrestled it out of me, Caleb, is what I actually scares me. When we make this movie on the meme stock mania, I think there's already a few in production, but when you and I make it, who's playing Roaring Kitty? Who's playing Elon Musk? And who's playing Charlie Munger? Roaring Kitty. That's got to be Tom Holland. Okay. I love him in Spider-Man. I thought he was phenomenal. He kind of looks a little bit like him. And I think he's got the chops to absolutely pull off that gutsy attitude. How about that traitor when he testified before Congress? I was so impressed. And I just thought he made some really, really good points. And and I, I just was a fan there. Elon Musk, Caleb, you know who's going to play Elon Musk. And that is Elon Musk. I mean, he did a great job on Saturday Night Live. No one could play him except Elon. So I think he's perfect. Self-cast. Yes. And who's playing Charlie Munger? We need the curmudgeon. And I love Charlie Munger, one of my favorite investors of all time. Does he get to oh. self-cast or are we going to have Sir Anthony Hopkins or somebody else play him? No. Charlie Munger has got to be played by Alan Arkin, who is one of my favorite actors. He is hilarious. I've loved him in all the Oceans movies. And, you know, who was better than him in Argo? He's perfect to play that curmudgeonly, you know, I mean, I just love the attitude that Charlie Munger has. And I think Arkin is the guy. Absolutely. Great casting. We're going to make this movie. And uh, I think it's going to, you know, we may have some sequels that come after it because we get bubbles after bubbles after bubbles. I know who I want to play me. Who's playing Liz Clayman in our in our version of this movie? Amy Adams, my Um, favorite redhead. On her best day, (laughs) on her best day, she could play you, perhaps. Liz, what was the biggest surprise for you in the past year? The biggest surprise over the past year is how many people missed the opportunity to buy amazing companies at very low prices, starting on March 23rd. And guess who goes into that crowd? It's Warren Buffett. He's the one who always said, be greedy when others are fearful. And yet, for the first time ever, he wasn't greedy. He didn't buy when things were crazy cheap. In fact, he sold the airlines and he lost money. So that was shocking to me that even Buffett, who's the king of let me dive in when everybody's running out of the water screaming shark, he 
didn't scoop up a bunch of names. That to me was very, very surprising. And to me too, and that didn't happen in 2008, 2009. He was the buyer of last resort. He was getting these preferred deals on some of the greatest companies the world has ever seen and making some opportunistic investments. So it is interesting, but he's also kind of given up the investing control to two of the the lieutenants at Berkshire Hathaway, though I don't think for a half a second that he doesn't have any input. Well, they didn't capitalize, right? And back during 2008, 2009, he got great investments in Goldman Sachs, Harley-Davidson, Tiffany. He swept in, got great warrants. I mean, it was unbelievable how much money. I think we broke it down per minute. Something like he was making $20,000 per minute on some of those investments. But he was the lender of last resort. This time around, it was like he took his hands off the driver's wheel and said, you guys do it to his two lieutenants, Todd and Ted, and they didn't jump. I found that very interesting. So so did I. It was a very interesting annual report and meeting this year. Who's your biggest influence, Liz, in, in business news and in investing? Who's had sort of the greatest mark on you? Buffett. Absolutely. I met Warren Buffett in 2006. I cold called him. Everyone said, don't. He doesn't give interviews. And I picked up the phone and I said, I'd love to uh, interview you. And he said, about what? And I said, well, you know, we're coming up on midterm elections and that would, he said, I don't know what's going to happen with that. And I said, well, I'd love to know regarding the stock market. I don't know what's going to happen with the stock market. So I said, well, I'd love to come to Nebraska and see how you value companies. So he said, hmm, I am a fan of yours, but tell me about yourself. And I said, oh, well, I'm very down to earth because all I had heard, Caleb, was that he was really down to earth and he shunned New York and he stayed in Nebraska. And and he said, really, where are you from? And I completely panicked because I'm from Beverly Hills. (laughs) And I said, well, Beverly Hills with an explanation. He said, what's the explanation? And I said, I am the daughter of two immigrants, granted from Canada, but their parents were born penniless Russian and Romanian Jewish immigrants. And my dad became a world-renowned surgeon. And my mom became a formally trained Shakespearean theater actress from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London. And he said, I bought two of my best businesses from Russian and Romanian Jewish immigrants. And he said, okay, come. So to me, once I got there, I soaked up everything he taught about investing. And to this day, you cannot go wrong if you pick good quality companies going through slightly bad times, because that makes them cheaper, who are either number one or number two in their industry. And you invest in them and you hold on. You don't take trade. And that to me has been the biggest influence that I try and pass on to viewers. Great story. And I know we would you know, go shoulder to shoulder in those scrums in Omaha at the annual meeting, year in and year out. And you were always there. And Warren would always, was always so generous with his time, but especially with you. And, and he's been uh, so important for business journalists like us who really learned watching what he did over the years. Last question for you, Liz, and we really appreciate your time. What's your favorite investing term? You know, we're a site full of investing terms and definitions. Which one mm-hmm. speaks to you? And is the Liz Clayman favorite investing term that just is you know right on the money as far as you're concerned? Backwardation. <laughs> Every time I say backwardation, which of course is a term used in the oil markets when it comes to futures and months out and how oil is trading, 
it just people just drop to the floor and they say, oh, that sounds so intelligent, backwardation. But of course, every time I have to go on Investopedia and look at the exact definition, there are so many definitions and you have to be self-taught. You, the collective you, have to be a participant in your own successful investing. That means you cannot leave it to one of your guys at some brokerage or bank, some investment manager, or television. It's got to be a combined effort, and you are the driver in all of this. And I just think it's so important to self-educate, and I always hope that people tune in to my show, certainly, as one piece of that self-education. You are absolutely right. And it's a lifelong journey in educating yourself about investing, educating yourself about money. It never ends, which is why I love it so much. And I love watching you on your show, watching you on TikTok. You are such a great educator and a first-class anchor and business journalist. Liz Clayman, I'm such a fan. Thanks for joining The Express. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Caleb. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term the educated investor needs to know this week. This week's term comes courtesy of two of our listeners who suggested the very same term, Rich in Derry, New Hampshire, where the great poet Robert Frost hung his hat, and Michael in Toms River, New Jersey, home of the 1998 Little League World Series champs, both suggested TTM or trailing 12 months as this week's term. Trailing 12 months or TTM, according to my favorite website, is a term used to describe the past 12 consecutive months of a company's performance data. The 12-month study do not necessarily coincide with the fiscal year-ending period. It's just the past 12 months. Analysts and investors use TTM to dissect financial data, such as balance sheet figures, income statements, and cash flows. Investors seeking to value companies may use TTM because it's more current and it's seasonally adjusted, which is usually a very good strategy. We like this suggestion this week because the last 12 months have done a number on corporate balance sheets. Business disappeared for so many companies last spring, but it has come roaring back in 2021, making the comparisons between the first half of this year versus the first half of 2020 look downright gaudy. It's harder and harder for investors to look at traditional fundamentals using trailing 12 months because it's so skewed right now. But as business normalizes, TTM is a useful strategy for assessing a company's health. Good suggestion, Rich and Michael. You'll both be getting a pair of Investopedia socks to wear around your hometowns this summer. We'll let President Franklin Delano Roosevelt take us out this week. Here's the 32nd President of the United States addressing the nation on March 12, 1933, announcing the details of the Emergency Banking Act after nearly 4,000 banks had failed from 1930 to 1933 amid the Great Depression, and Americans were making run after run on the nation's banks. After all, there is an element in the readjustment of our financial system more important than currency, more important than gold, and that is the confidence of the people themselves. Confidence and courage are the essentials of success in carrying out our plan. You people must have faith. You must not be stampeded by rumors or guesses. Let us unite in banishing fear. We have provided the machinery to restore our financial system, and it is up to you to support and make it work. FDR was asking for the American people to keep the faith in their financial system during its darkest hours. And you know what? They did. Let's all keep the faith this week, and let's stay focused and stay kind. We'll talk again a little further on down the line. 